Well, this is definitely the biggest nine o'clock service ever. Good to have you guys here. Guess that extra hour of sleep did you well. If you don't know me, my name is Stephen. I'm the pastor here. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We're in a series entitled Satan Hates Genesis 1. This is week number three. And uh, the reason we're doing this series is because a couple months ago, uh, as I was teaching one weekend, uh, I just kept pointing everything back to Genesis 1 and then realized that Satan is just trying to upend everything that God laid out in Genesis chapter 1. From the very first words, in the beginning, God created that the heavens and the earth. And our culture tells us right now, no, he didn't. It's all random or it just evolved or however we want to understand the opposite of God being creator. The rest of Genesis 1 then goes to tell the story of God's good plan because God is good and his plan is good. And then Satan, the enemy would say, no, God isn't good or his plan isn't good. You can't trust him. And then we get to verse 26 and we see that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. You and I and all of humanity is born in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And we receive a value there in that moment that can't be taken away. But then in Genesis chapter three, sin entered into the world and it marred the image of God. We're still, and all of humanity is still born in the image of God. And that's why as Christians, we see the dignity of human life in every life, regardless if they're the worst of sinners, we still see in them the dignity that they were made in the image of God. And so there's a love that we have for all of humanity. But that image is now marred under the weight and the curse of sin. But Christ came to redeem us out of that. And so Christ comes down to earth as the perfect image of God. And he takes on the sins of humanity on the cross. It crushes him, but he doesn't say dead. He rises from the grave. And when we believe in him by grace through faith, then we are not only now made in the image of God, but we are raised up with Christ. We are clothed in Jesus. And so there is a value that cannot be taken from us. We can't lose that value of being made in the image of God. But now as Christ followers, we can't lose the value that we have been raised with Christ. And here's the most beautiful part of the whole thing. Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This wasn't even something that you had to earn, that we had to earn, that you had to work or strive after. Christ did all of the work for you on the cross. It's the beautiful gospel. And what this teaches us is that as Christians, we operate from a inherited or intrinsic value. We don't have to go work to earn our value. There's nothing we can do to become more valuable in front of Christ. I have as much value as I'm ever going to have, no matter what I accomplish or if I fail. No matter what or who I'm connected to or if I'm all alone, the value I have been given by God can't be taken. And it is very important as Christians that we understand the order of things. It's why God designed us and the world the way that he did. So Genesis chapter one, it lays out God's perfect plan for the earth to flourish and for humanity to experience its deepest joy. And we do that when we live to give God glory. And as we live to give God glory under his plan, then it brings us a deep joy. That's what God wants for each and every one of us. But unfortunately, the weight of sin, the curse of sin, gets us to follow our own path. 
So last week, I laid out that inherent value in the Imago Dei and in being raised with Christ. Today, I want to talk about what God talks about next, where from value comes purpose. See, in the world's eyes, we do our purpose, we live our purpose, and then we obtain value as we live out our purpose. And this false mindset has actually worked its way into the church. We hear a lot about discover your purpose, learn your purpose, find your purpose. If you get your purpose, you're going to be happy. Purpose-driven life, best-selling Christian book of all time. And I'm not uh, against all of those things. I'm just saying we have to put the order proper. Value drives purpose. Purpose doesn't drive value. See, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says you're saved by faith. And then verse 10 says you become his masterpiece created for good works. The work we do comes after the value that we've received. This is the same with Christ. It is said of Christ. God says at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How much work of ministry had Christ done to that point? None. Value first, identity first, then you live out your purpose. And so this proper ordering of things is very important for us. For if we run around thinking, I need to find my purpose, I need to find my purpose, what's underneath that often is once I find my purpose, then I'll find my joy. Once I find my purpose, then my life will have meaning. No, your life already has meaning and already has value because of who you are in God and then because of who you are as a raised person in Christ. But from that, God is so good. Once he assigns us our value and our new identity in Christ, what he does is he gives us this beautiful purpose to live out. As referenced earlier, Ephesians 2.10 says it this way, that we are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus, there's the value part, for good works. God has good things for us to do. In Genesis chapter one, he laid it out like this. Let me read it to you. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, that's the Imago Dei, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them and God blessed them. That means he wants them to be happy. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created us with value, and then he gave us purpose to do outside of our value, or out of our value. Purpose is answering the question, what am I supposed to do in life? How am I supposed to spend my time? And what I want to do this morning is show you in Genesis chapter one, and then in the corresponding verses in the new, uh, or in the recreation, when we're now raised with Christ, right? Because we have Genesis chapter one, that's like the first part of the Bible, and then Genesis 3.14, when sin enters in, and the rest of it is the second part of the Bible, right? And so in the first part, we'll see uh, the instructions that God gives us, and then we'll see how those instructions are mirrored in in the recreation when we're redeemed by Christ. In other words, our purpose hasn't changed from the original garden or now as we're raised in Christ. 
And as we talk through this purpose and talk about what we're supposed to do in life, I'm going to talk about it in generalities. And so my job today is not to convince you that you should take this job or that job or you should go to this school or that school or you should date that person or this person. My job today is to give you generalities of who it is that God says you're supposed to be uh, as far as what you do in life. And I'm going to give you three general categories. Let me give them to you right now. And, and, and this answers the question for all of humanity and for all, uh, particularly for Christians, this answers the question, what should I do in life? What am I supposed to do with my life? These three things. The, the first was this, have dominion over the earth have dominion over the earth. I'll explain the, uh, the makeup of that phrase more in a second. Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean dominate the earth and all of its people, okay? My, one of my favorite board games is Risk. I only played video games that were about domination. So I'm into like conquering the world in that way, but that's not what this verse means. And so we, we don't wanna skew that. It also doesn't say dominate people. It says the earth and the animals, and that's an important distinction. It was only sin later that got us to dominate one another, okay? So dominate, what does it mean? What does that phrase mean? In a word, steward or leverage. Steward or leverage. So that's gonna be our first category. Our second category is this, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. I think we know what that one means. I'm gonna give you three examples of what that means. And the word we'll use for that is multiply. So we got steward and multiply. This is the answer to the question, by the way. What am I supposed to do with my life? Steward and multiply. And then word number uh, three was fill the earth, or the phrase in Genesis is fill the earth and subdue it. And so the word we could use for that is to expand, or if we wanna use a different word, to work, to work. And so there's our three words. You could leave right now and have a basic outline of what you need to do in life. You need to steward, you need to multiply, you need to expand. That is how you have been wired as a human being. That's how God designed you. And he placed us in the garden originally where there was no sin so that we would, we would steward, we would multiply, and we would expand. That is the God-given threefold purpose on every human life. And Satan hates it. He hates it because he hates Genesis 1 and he hates that God has made you to flourish. And so instead of uh, you stewarding, multiplying, and expanding what God or what Satan wants for you is he wants you to think you own. And he wants you to build your kingdom instead of God's. And sometimes his temptations are subtle. Like we see Jesus being tempted by Satan. Satan says to Jesus, hey, don't you want a kingdom? And did Jesus want a kingdom? Yes, he did. But the kingdom that Satan wanted to give him was different than the kingdom that the father wanted to give him. The temptation was so subtle. And sometimes what Satan does is he tries these subtle little attacks. I don't think I've said this yet today. Satan has one tactic, lies and deception. That's it. That's it. And so what Satan tries to do in the first one, the, the God-given mandate is to steward. He tries to get us to own. Said another way, God has created you to be about the building of his kingdom. Satan wants you to be about the building of your kingdom. And that's how he distorts it. God designed you to multiply and to bear fruit. Satan wants you to be fruitless and to divide instead of multiply. And he uses every tactic possible to get us to do that. Satan wants you to expand and to work. God wants you, I'm sorry, God wants you to expand and work. Satan wants you to, uh, to shrink, to fall back, to be afraid. 
And so this is the, the, the setup here, How, what God wants versus what Satan wants. And Satan hates Genesis 1 because he's trapped between his past rebellion and his future judgment. He's got nothing better than, to do right now than to try and destroy you. And so that's how he, how he goes about doing it, distorting these truths. Now, at the heart of this and at the heart of purpose, I've shared a little bit already about how this gets distorted in our current world, even in our current Christian circles right now, where we make Christianity a very self-centered thing. Ah, come to faith and find your purpose. Ah, come to God and discover who you are. The problem with all of those phrases is it's not in the Bible. And that's not even what the scriptures say. Let me point it out to you a little bit because this is not the best way to go about living your faith. It is bad preaching, bad biblical counseling, and bad um, pastoring in general if I tell you that my role is for you to discover your purpose, for you to discover who you are. Let me prove it to you. Look what Jesus said. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Let me translate that. For what will it profit a man if he discovers his purpose? But it's a self-centered one about him or her instead of him. See, we exist. God designed us to exist, to bring him glory. It's the answer to the first catechism question. Why does man exist? To bring God glory and to enjoy him forever. We have been designed not to bring ourselves glory and not to be about our own kingdom. You have been hardwired by God to be about his kingdom, not your own. The scriptures go on to explain this a little bit more. In Psalm 107, three through four, it talks about how some wandered in desert wastes, finding no place to a city to dwell in. The rest of the context of the story is saying this, that when you and I are about our own purpose, when we're about trying to find out who we are, it's like wandering in the desert. And in the desert, uh, we get hungry and we get thirsty. Uh, Spiritually speaking, our souls dry up. We can search and search and search for our purpose, but we'll never find it. We'll never find the city. The city is the place of purpose and provision. The text goes on to explain how, but if we find ourselves in him, we will find ourselves in that city. To continue on, Romans chapter three says it this way. I'm just trying to prove my point that Christianity is not about you discovering you. No one is righteous. No, not one, Paul writes in Romans. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All right, this is so much fun. We'll do one more. If your summation of the first part of this sermon is... This isn't very optimistic about human nature. You are understanding me correctly. Romans 7, 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. What a rosy picture of humanity. 
He goes on to say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And what is the answer to that question? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus rescues us from ourselves. Jesus rescues us from who we are apart from him. Our aim in Christianity is not to discover myself, it's to lose myself and then to find myself in Christ. That's who we are in, uh, in that, that's what Christianity is about. Jesus, you, you, I take on your righteousness, I take on your image, I'm stripped away, and then you come alive inside of me. And in that then, Like Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter two, I'm gonna go back to this verse a lot, that then we become his masterpiece because we are Christ, because we've now been raised with Christ. And in Ephesians 2.10, he says, you're now his masterpiece when you lose yourself and you are now in Jesus. You've been redeemed through this grace and this gospel. And now then, now then, God's got good things for you to do. He's got great work for you to do. And he wants you to be about his work, and that is what you then have been designed to do, to be about his work. And in working for him then is where you find the deepest sense of satisfaction. So today, if you're wondering, what am I going to do with my life? You could be 70 and still asking that question, or you're 14, or somewhere in between. What are you supposed to do with your life? According to Genesis and according to the New Testament, You're to steward, multiply, and expand. So let's look at them one by one. We're supposed to steward, or as the text says there, to have dominion over the earth. You were wired to have dominion over the earth. Again, it doesn't mean to dominate. What it means is, as Adam was placed in the garden, and as there were the animals and the land that was there, it was now Adam's role to leverage all of those resources and everything that was there for the advancement of God's glory. In the same way, you have been designed that whatever, if you can follow the metaphor, whatever garden you have been placed in, whatever circle of life that you're in, you have been designed then to to leverage all that that is, this is what stewardship is, to leverage all that you have, all that you are, and all that you can do for the kingdom of God. That's how you've been wired. Every talent that you have, every gift that God has given you, every bit of money that you earn, every bit of time that you have is about leveraging it for the advancement of the glory of God. Satan's lie is for you to begin to think, no, I have this time and I have this skill, I have this talent and I have this amount of money and I have this and what I have it all for is me and to build my kingdom and to be about my business. No, no, God has created you to steward all that he has given you for the advancement of his kingdom. A couple of questions that I have to ask myself sometimes that might be helpful for you as I evaluate these things is when I do evaluate how I spend my money, where I uh, spend my time, how I use the talents or gifts that I've been given. I have to dig down deep underneath and ask, God, am I really using these for you or for me? And by the way, this doesn't mean you have to change jobs. This doesn't mean that you have to sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor. 
What this does mean is you having honest conversations with God because you're realizing that your true purpose is being lived out when you have arrived at the place of saying, I don't own any of this. I don't even own this body. You already bought it with a price. I don't own this talent. I don't own this gift. I don't own this business. I don't own this anything. It's all yours. It is all yours. You get to do with it as you please. Lord, you get to tell me what to do with my talent. God, you get to tell me what to do with my money. God, you get to tell me what to do with my time. I don't tell you, you tell me, it's all yours. And the power of his Holy Spirit inside of you will lead you to the decisions that you make as you do that. But then as you grow up in Christ, what happens is as you're maturing in Christ, you realize, I mean, I've realized this in my own life, that the the more you walk out this path, the less you're supposed to see all that you have are and can do as yours and more of his. And it begins to just do what Christ taught or what the scriptures talk about, where it's stripping away you and more of Christ is coming out. You've been wired for that. And one of the reasons, perhaps, that you're not feeling a deep purpose right now is because maybe the way you're spending every day in the work, in the business, in the job, whatever it might be, is about your kingdom and not his. And you're feeling a purposelessness But it could be turned on in a moment if you just shifted over and said, okay, God, I've been thinking about this all the wrong way. I've been making it about me. Now let me make it about you. You might not have to change your job at all. You might go to the same place tomorrow that you've gone for the last 27 years. And it's different. Because all of a sudden, it isn't about you. It's about him. It's about his glory. It's about leveraging all that you have, all that you are, and all that you can do for his kingdom, not your own. And now you're walking in the purpose God has designed for you. Second word was to multiply, or as the phrase says, to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, we know what the first part of this is, right? To have children. That's the first part. I mean, in the, in the Genesis account, that was like the original command was like, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, Adam, I'm going to give you Eve, and then y'all need to make some babies because we need more people on earth here. I want to give you three ways that I think this phrase, be fruitful and multiply, actually plays itself out in the scriptures. And this is in part of our God-given purpose in these three ways, okay? And the first one, I am going to talk about the original, be fruitful and multiply, like the the issue to have children or the instruction to have children. And um, let me say before I go into this too deep that I understand that the moment we begin to open up this conversation, that it can also open up wounds. And so I want you to know who I am or am not talking to this morning. And there are many who for physical reasons or or whatever else have tried, and there's a lot of um, hurt around this. And I want you to know that God's grace and love is with you and our grace and love is with you. And so I don't want anyone to hear anything this morning that they ought not to hear. And I've prayed about that all week, that the Holy Spirit would direct this. I do want to have a quick conversation with those who are in rightful childbearing age, Right? Or for the rest of us who know people like that, to maybe have some kind words to challenge scripturally with. As followers of Christ, we have been instructed to be fruitful and multiply. Part of that might be as you guys sit around and ask the question should we have another one? Well, maybe. Maybe you should think about it. I also see a few lies that Satan tries to use. And we know, Colossians chapter 2, 8 teaches us this, that lies hold us captive. 
Lies are meant to destroy. God's truth is meant to set free. There are a few lies that I believe that Satan uses in order to um, encourage people not to do this, not to be fruitful and multiply in this way. Lie number one is this. Well, we're just not ready to have kids. We're not ready to have kids. Okay, maybe you're not ready right now. But what a great moment then to stop and to realize that and to begin to seek the Holy Spirit and mentoring in such a way to get you ready to fulfill a God-given command. Use that as motivation to say, okay, God, if we don't think we're ready, what do we need to do to get ready? Second lie that Satan uses is, well, we can't afford a baby. What better motivation to get your financial life in order than to be blessed with a child from God? Get your, fun, get your finances in order. Work the budget. Go read a Dave Ramsey book. Figure it out. Every good gift comes from God the Father. Children are a gift. They come from God. Don't use that. It doesn't have to be an excuse. Get them in order. Another um, one that pops up as well, we just wouldn't be good parents. We'd be bad parents. Well, maybe. Or maybe... Becoming a parent is the very thing that needs to happen for you to be sanctified in such a way that you would become a good parent. Or to say you wouldn't be a good parent, a lot of that is simply you're acknowledging your selfishness. You're allowed to repent of that. You're allowed to repent of that. Let God change you in that and then step into it. Now, this all has to be Holy Spirit driven, okay? This does not mean that every married young couple needs to go out and have a baby tonight, okay? It might mean some of you do, (laughs) but let the Holy Spirit speak to you through that. Let me give you the fourth lie, by the way, that the enemy uses right now, and that is, this world is so crazy, how could I possibly bring a child into it? And by the way, I didn't say this at the beginning, but I should have said this at the beginning. When we're talking about this, what we mean is the biblical context of it, right, is the best way to do it. And we understand there's grace and all these things happen, all of that. But, but ultimately, what we're talking about is man, woman, marriage, right? Uh, and that, that, that is the plan that God has designed, at least the way he wants it most properly to function. Now, in this fourth one, we buy into this lie like this, right, which is the world's so crazy. How could I bring a, a baby into the world right now? Let me tell you God's strategy. Let me tell you God's strategy. And I think we should adopt this strategy. The Christians have lots of children. Raise them up in the way they should go. Abandon and forsake all of the craziness and all of the lies uh, that the enemy is teaching right now. We raise up our children in the way they should go, exactly as the scriptures teach us to, and then we just repeat the process. Give us three generations, we'll outpopulate everybody else, and we'll be winning. Got it? Amen? Amen? Like, this is actually the biblical plan. Keep having them. Keep having them. Train them up in the way they should go. All right. That's number one. Be fruitful and multiply. Got to teach it when it's in there. Number two is this, to make disciples. So some of you are like, oh, I'm, we ain't having another kid, <laughs> okay? Yeah, we're too old for that. Second way, then, that we all do this is by making disciples. Jesus said it this way, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the commands that I have given you. It's interesting that this um, 
Christ's instruction here uh, mirrors the instruction in Deuteronomy chapter six, which talks about teaching children all of the things of God, right? And, and so in the same way, parents are to teach their children, uh, and, and Christians then are to be a part of discipling other people. And part of our God-given purpose is to be a part of the discipleship process for other people. And that can happen a lot of different ways. One of the ways that happens is, uh, well, I'll give you a bunch of them, but we're all to be in this process. And one of the reasons you might not be experiencing the purpose that you feel like you want to be in life is because you're not currently multiplying yourself out into others. See, Satan wants us to do one of two things, be stagnant or to divide. Christ wants you to be fruitful and to multiply. And so part of that then is how we pour ourselves into other people, getting involved in a Bible study or leading a life group or teaching children or teaching youth or having some part in our life. And for us as parents, it starts with the kids that we have at home, but having some area in our life, whether it's peer on peer or it's you pouring into someone else, right? And there are even like um, particular scriptural examples where it's like older women teach the younger women, like these are like clear instructions uh, and right, and that there is purpose in this then. And God uses that to bring about joy in life, that we, we connect across age gaps. That's one of the reasons, right, we love our church because it's multi-generational and, uh, and that we then disciple and pour in, and you have been wired for this. And so part of maybe escaping the funk that you're in is figuring out, God, how do you want me to use who I am to help disciple somebody else, to multiply the last part of it, of the multiplication one, is sowing and reaping. And this is a principle that's all used all throughout the New Testament. And the idea is simply this, that you can sow righteousness and reap a harvest. And so part of purpose, part of God-given purpose is waking up every day and saying, like, I have Christ in me, and so I can sow encouragement, and I can sow a positive word, and I can sow into a new relationship, uh, and I can sow into uh, where there's a, a problem. I can step in and be part of a solution. I, I can sow forgiveness. I, I can sow release of bitterness. I can sow these things, and as I do, then God will bear fruit out of that. And you'll experience purpose in that. It's like waking up every day and saying, okay, I have been given a God-given mandate to be sowing and reaping. I've been given a God-given mandate to walk through life and ask every time I step into a situation, how can I sow something into this so that it might reap a harvest of righteousness? Changes how you wake up every day. Changes what you do every day. Changes how you uh, engage in every conversation. I'm sowing something in because I've been called to be fruitful and multiply. Word number one, steward. Leverage everything you are and everything that you have and everything that you can be for the advancement of the gospel and God's kingdom, not your own. Number two, to be multiplying, not dividing, to be sowing and reaping and seeing harvest of righteousness uh, um, come to be all around you. Word number three, uh, in the scriptures, it says this way, fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth and subdue it. And uh, the easiest or quickest translation like this is to be about, uh, we're, we're wired to be expanding or to be working, to, to be about work. Here's one of the funny things about COVID, right? Uh, the whole COVID situation, I'm not trying to make any commentary. I'm simply saying that there's no doubt that during this whole COVID time, one of the things that it has done, it has drastically changed the way we work, okay? And early on in particular, one of the devastating things about COVID was that it disrupted people's God-given mandate to, to, to work, right? And it was fun for two weeks, right? But after six weeks, your beard was doing all sorts of things, 
right? And you're like, man, I got to find something to do. Why? Because we've been given a God-given mandate to work. It was intriguing. This is what I love about God. He took that uh, uh, where, where we weren't able to work anymore, and he's like, okay, so that mandate is kind of on the, on the download. What did God do? He said, well, we'll, we'll work on the other mandate, be fruitful and multiply during this time. See, God can win everything. It's awesome. Even called to work. Even called to work. And work is good for us. We've been designed to work. This doesn't mean you have to have a paying job, right? This can look a lot of different ways. Of course, back in the scriptures, it wasn't like, uh, you know, Adam, you need to go work at Amazon, right? Or you need to start your own business. Or you, no, no. Like work can be a lot of different things, but we've been designed for it. You know, recent studies have come out that have said that any amount of free time over three hours a day consistently leads to depression. Any time, any amount of three hours more of free time a day consistently leads to depression. They're like, like nothing to do. God has designed us to be about something, to have something to do, have something to do. Oh, and the enemy, he, he wants us to believe the lies and he wants us to, to fall out of habit and pattern in this because he knows if we do, then he can come in and he can wreak havoc on our minds. He can make us feel worthless. He can make us feel purposeless. He can make us feel like there's no reason to wake up. But God has designed us to be about something, to be about working, to be about using what you have been given by God and making something happen for him. And so maybe part of the reason right now you're feeling the way you're feeling is because you've been designed to be about something and, and for whatever reason you haven't been about and God's saying, hey, let's get you about something. And, and there always is a, a temptation to, of course, to not want to work. The other day, um, I dropped a dime on the ground and Reagan came running. I was like, truly her father's <laughs> child, right? So she, she runs in and she's like, Daddy, did you drop a penny? I said, no, I dropped a dime. And she said, oh, right? She understands tenfold, okay? And I said, do you want it? She said, I do. I said, do you want to put it in your jar? She said, I do. I said, great. All I need you to do is carry these clothes upstairs to your room, and then Daddy will give you the dime. And she looked at me and said, well, that's not very nice. <laughs> and she started walking away. And I said, you little Z generation, woke, broke, don't want to work punk, get over here. I said, daddy government is not bailing you out. Get a job. Actually, I said, a kiss will do too. <laughs> uh, I'm raising a tyrant. Okay. Um, Now, you better believe we're changing the way we do chores around our house, okay, after that little. We're wired to work. We need to work. We need to be about something. All, every one of us, we need to be about something. Whatever our age is, having something that we get up and we know, God, this is what you're calling me to do. This is what you're calling me to be a part of. It's part of how he's wired you. Satan also then wants to take this and he wants to distort it one more way. And you know how? Overworking overworking. And maybe you say, gosh, I wish there was just a way that we would know if, there, if I was overworking. You know what? God gave us a way. And it's almost in Genesis 1. It was actually Genesis 2 too. You know what it's called? Sabbath. Sabbath. 
God says, hey, let me give you a little strategy to let you know if you're overworking. Overworking is if you can't take a day to reconnect with God and family and to intentionally rest, then you're overworking. If you can't do that, you're overworking. That should be a part of your rhythm. Earlier this year and into last year, um, Lindsay and I were in a particularly very busy season. And sometimes, not every season is created equal. And I was working a ton in those three or four months. And we had just had August. And, you know, so Lindsay's at home with the new baby and with Reagan running around and all of this. And, and it, was a, it was a short-term, very busy season. And we don't get religious about this kind of stuff because we understand that there are seasons and there are lifestyles, Okay. Seasons and lifestyles. And we have to make sure that we understand which one we're in. Five years is not a season. It's a lifestyle. And so we have to make sure. But one of the things that came out of it, and this is the blessing of God, is in about March after the the busiest of that time ended, um, Lindsay and I took back our Fridays. And very well-meaning, a lot of you often, because you guys are a great church and you're so kind to Lindsay and I, will say, hey, how are you guys doing? And I know that you mean it. And my answer is typically great. Why? Because one of the reasons why, outside of the incredible team we have here, is because of the beauty of Sabbath. And so every Friday morning, Lindsay and I wake up at, uh, whenever we wake up, my dad comes over at 8.30, he watches the kids, Lindsay and I go for a walk for an hour and a half. We've done this almost every Friday since March. And then we go through the rest of our day like this. And it doesn't mean that there's not a Friday that I have to take a phone call. It doesn't mean that there's not a Friday every once in a while where we have to do something or or whatever. But as consistently as possible, every Friday morning, we're going to be on an hour and a half walk. We're going to Sabbath. And the, the strength that that brings, the refreshing that that brings, the way it holds the most important relationship that we have with each other, the way it can do that for you is crucial. It's crucial. And Sabbath... It's very religious sometimes, but we have to remember the heart of it, to intentionally connect with God and family and to rest, and to rest. And so maybe you grew up with some weird ideas of Sabbath, like you're not allowed to leave the house or drive a car, okay? You can do those things, but can you take some time and intentionally reconnect with God and family and rest? And you know what happens on Saturday morning? I wake up and I'm like ready to go like pumped up and ready. Lindsay's always like, Saturday's off too. And I'm like, God only gave us one day. (laughs) I should work, right? And then we work through that. We work through that. But this is the sign that God has given us on whether or not you're overworking. Long-term Sabbath. Now, where do we see all of this come together? Where do we see all all of stewardship and multiplication and work or expanse? Where do we see it all come together? Oh, we see it at the beauty of the cross, don't we? Don't we see the beauty of the cross, how Christ comes down to earth? And on the cross, what does Christ do? He leverages or stewards everything that he is, all for the glory of his heavenly father. His blood was the payment. His blood funded our salvation and redemption. And so Christ goes to the cross as the perfect steward of all. He's leveraging everything that he is for his father's glory, not for his own kingdom. And so he lays it all out on the cross. And then post the cross, after he raises from the grave, what does he do? He pours his Holy Spirit out, which becomes the most multiplying force in the history of the world. 
And even when uh, Christ was on earth, what did he do? He poured himself into three and 12 and 70 and 500 and thousands. And then on this side of the cross, the Holy Spirit pours himself out and multiplies this gospel movement. And then Christ has launched and led and is still in charge of the most expansive work-based entity in the world, the church. Now, let me pause for a second. When I say the church should be the most work-based entity in the world, I have to take you all the way back to the beginning and to remember this, that in church, we do not work to earn. We work because we've already been given. The most miserable people in the world are those who are trapped in churches where they are working to earn because you will never earn enough to satisfy God's wrath. You will never earn enough to, um, to, to make yourself feel valuable. You will never do enough. You will never serve enough. You will never give enough. If you're serving or you're giving or you're doing for all of that reasons, by God's grace, just stop. Just stop. Why? Because it's exhausting and it's painful and it hurts. And you think you should be getting something, but you're not getting something because you're not doing it in the right way. And maybe you just need to pause for a second and say, God, I want to receive the value again. I want to be rooted in the gospel of grace again. I want to be so overcome by the gift that you've poured out to me again. And then at the right time, then I will begin to pour back out. And maybe God can shift that in a second for you. I pray that he does. Or maybe you need to just pause for a second, right? And just say, God, what does it look like to just simply receive my value and to not be earning my value. It is a horrible reflection on me as a pastor if our church is filled with people running around giving and serving so that they feel valuable. I have failed if that is the case. But it is the sign of a healthy place and it is the sign of a God-ordained place when we are all running around because we're so full of the grace that Christ has been given to us that we just pour out now and operate in our purpose. And that's the life that God has designed for you. Jesus calls it the life, uh, the abundant life. Paul calls it the life that is truly life. We receive our value and then we run around stewarding, multiplying, and expanding for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace of Christ that you have poured out on us. And I pray for anyone in this room right now who is bought into Satan's lie about building their own kingdom. Right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, shift it. And may they be able to wake up tomorrow with a new focus all that they are for your kingdom. Lord, I pray for those of us who feel restless or purposeless because we haven't yet walked in these three commands. By your grace, Lord, don't hide things from us. Just show us good paths of what we can do. I pray that you would stir us to action where it is appropriate, not to earn value, but out of the value that you've already given us. Oh, and Father, thank you that Christ came, that he laid himself down so that we, we might bear his image now and we can be about his good purposes that Paul tells us, you wrote in advance that we would do these, that we would walk in them. And so we wanna walk in them. And so help us to do that in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. 
You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.